So I'm not sure why Philip Phillips wrote the song. We tried to figure out what was he thinking, but the lyrics, I don't know, as a Christian, as someone who, who loves Jesus, some of these lyrics, bring your secrets, bring your scars, bring your glory all you are, bring your daylight, bring your dark, share in your silence and unpack your heart. I love, I'm on your side, shed that shadow and watch it rise. Into your darkness I'll shine a light. I can't help but think of Jesus, of, of Jesus calling his people, those who, who are longing to satisfy a hunger that's deep in their souls. I, ca- I can't help but listen to these lyrics. That's Jesus calling me. You know, the church that gathers around the name of Jesus Christ does not gather for programs. It gathers because of a hunger, a devotion around the name of Jesus. And we've been trying to answer this question for a few weeks. Uh, and so as a third installment, meaning we a couple weeks, ways ago, actually about six weeks ago, we talked about remarkable community. But we're intrigued by this idea of how does a community become remarkable? How does, how does the church find itself expressing uh, great compassion to the poor, uh, forgiveness to those who harm us, love to a city, Love to one another. How does that happen? Well, traditionally, we could write up a to-do list, right? We could say the seven things that churches have to do, and we could blog about that and probably get a lot of interest and energy around it. We, we could read the scriptures and probably pull out lots of interesting insights of what churches did. But I want to do different this morning. I, wanna, I, I want us to to dig a little bit deeper because when it comes to the truth of why we do things and why we don't do things, it's an issue of heart. It really is an issue of your heart. And this morning it's appropriate for us to unpack the heart of the early church. What, what, what was going on in the hearts of people? The classic passage in Acts is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And I've taught that several times, and sometimes teaching that in such a way to say, well, these are the things they did, so we should do them too. I believe that's an inappropriate interpretation of what we're reading. We're reading 120 Christians who just experienced the death and resurrection of the one they called Jesus, their Savior, their Messiah. They saw him, that he appeared to them for 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven. And he doesn't leave a leadership manual for the church. He doesn't leave a how-to book. He doesn't leave a doctrine book and saying, if you get this all right, then you'll be perfect. He ascends to heaven, and what do they, all they know how to do is to get together and pray. And then the Holy Spirit comes and snap, a completely, a huge transformation unfolds. A a hunger, a a devotion, a, a whole new energy begins to erupt in this set of young believers. Right before this text, Peter preaches and 3,000 come to Christ. 3,000. Imagine. That's nearly 30 times the 120. 30 times growth. Imagine what chaos we would be in for that, right? We now, you know, meet at Lambeau Field for, for church. I mean, it would be crazy, and, and so then we land on this text, and 
it's this picture of what the church is expressing its affection, how it's expressing, expressing its great love and affection. I want to just read this text for you and then point out one word. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and a prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I, I want to laser in on just one word here that's going to set up really what we're looking at. It's the word devoted. I've, I've already given you a little bit of a hint of what this word means because just saying this word in the English language, I mean, we could define it in many ways. Uh, somewhat of a committed faithfulness. I'm devoted to you. You know, there, there's probably different weights of how we read that word. In the, in the original Greek, an understanding of this word, this is an unremitted care. It means I don't wane or fade in my deliberate Focus and attention of waiting on you. See, devotion means so much more when you read the original language. It means unwavering, unfading, a constant commitment to. And so devoted to me, it feels a little bit light. It's, in other words, we could say it this way. We could say it's, it is a unsatisfied hunger that continues on. Now, we know as God creates us, he creates a hunger in us, a desire for God. People all over the world as they wander the earth searching for something to satisfy and some try to find it in money and some found it in power or try to find it in power. Others relationships, all these different things that people are trying to find to fill the void. But then Jesus comes into your life and you, for the first time, taste. Taste of satisfaction. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he's teaching the Beatitudes. It's his first message. And he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This morning, you need to hear that the hunger you might feel this morning will not be satisfied without Jesus. This hunger that you feel. Have you ever been hungry? I mean, I'm, I'm going to say more than skipping a meal or two. So years ago, I, I was, you know, for maybe some good reasons and some wrong ones, but I wanted to fast for seven days. I had a friend that still does this today, fasts for 40 days every year, one time. Just water. And, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be spiritual and do this. And so uh, I made it five days. I made it five days. They say at three days, you start, your, your organs start to, they don't feel the hunger pains anymore. The problem is the physiology of how we're wired. You realize hunger comes also from your brain. So you could literally cut out the stomach and you would still feel hunger because a lot of the signals that your brain's saying, you're hungry, you better start eating. I, did, I was so spiritual for five days. I mean... I felt like I was floating and, you know, God was speaking to me. And then I had a staff meeting. I, it wasn't my staff meeting. I was supposed to go to a staff meeting. 
and they were serving fried chicken. There's everything wrong about what fried chicken does to the sense of smell. I, I, I think I literally was drooling on paper as I was walking by because I think I remember calling my wife saying, I'm done, I've broken fast. I'm, <laughs> have you ever been hungry? And maybe the question is, what are you hungry for? I, I wanna be clear this morning that y- you will feel conviction this morning, not because I'm trying to shame you, but the scriptures are so powerful. And I wanna, I wanna begin to talk to you about what it looks like in the early church to have hunger, and what were they hungry around? What were they hungry for? Now, before I get there, I want to talk to you about marriage. Marriage is an interesting covenant that God designs, much like the church, and God uses these two metaphors uh, Interchangeably, he, um, excuse me, he uses this metaphor of marriage interchangeably with the church. Jesus dies for the bride, and one day he will come back and have the bride. That's us, the church. So just for, for perspective, I, I've done a lot of weddings. I've been at a lot of weddings, and I have uh, been in some weddings. I have yet to hear a bride and groom that stand on the altar and forecast their divorce. Yeah, one day we'll blow up. This will all come off. All the wheels will come off and we'll be done. I have yet to see a bride and groom stand up and going, yep, you're going to screw up, I'm going to screw up, and we're just going to call it quits eventually. I've never heard that. Even to couples, I'm saying don't get married. I've told some couples, you should not get married. You're not ready. So... This picture of the early church is much like that honeymoon season, right? They're like, yes, we just we got we love Jesus, and so we're just. They start to express their hunger for Jesus. I want to give you that picture because what if the church could look at itself down the road, maybe the end of the first century? Well, in your Bibles, if you turn to Revelation chapter three. There is this note and picture to the early church. It's the seven letters to the churches of the time, and God inspires the Apostle John, the disciple John, to write these warnings to the churches. And there's one letter that he writes to the church in Laodicea. Now, interesting part about Laodicea, uh, it's physically stationed between two other cities, Heropolis and Colossae at the time. Now, it's like modern-day Turkey is about the area and region it's in. Great story, though, about how God leverages the real-life situations and qualities of this city. This city is stationed between two. Heropolis, known for its amazing medicinal hot springs. Like, people would sit in these hot tubs and hot springs for the, the value. On the other side of this city, another city was Colossae, known for its cold, fresh water. Feel a setup? Feel a setup? This, this city had the church. They, they, I'm sure, one day sat there as this bride of the church, as God was giving him this hunger to be the church. There they sat, probably never forecasting where they would get this letter. And so listen to the letter. It says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, 
There are the words, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. God says, I know what you're doing. Even deeper than that, I know what's going on in your heart. It's interesting this morning, we, we could probably stop here and feel an amazing challenge this morning, right? We operate as if no one knows. He does. Isn't it funny how we play God a little bit? I, uh, early in growing up, I had many different jobs, but I would have these jobs where I had a time card. Anybody remember those? You had a time card? I don't know, still somebody punches in, and it would punch you into the minute, right? They'd pay you up to the minute. And, and you know, I was always dragged my feet as a young guy a little bit more. I knew if I swept a little bit better and a couple extra minutes, there's a few extra pennies, boom, punch the card. I think many people in the church today, many people who say they're disciples are punching cards. If I show up to church, boom, God gives me credit. I've got some credit stored. Remember I gave to that person on the street because they needed a little bit of cash? Remember how nice I was to that relative that was a bonehead to me? Boom, punching the card. And I think we operate as if God is just on this big credit system and he's got a huge divine like time clock or credit clock that's just checking you in, ching, ching. Never once in scripture does it say that our deeds are what measure us right before God. And so this church, hearing these words, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot, Heropolis, Colossae is interesting, that picture, I wish you were at least one or the other. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no middle ground. You either are or you aren't. This morning, I don't know where you're at. As Bobby said, you, we come a lot of different places in your faith journey, but you need to hear very clearly, you either know him or you don't. I don't almost know someone, right? Well, I almost know. No, they know your name or they don't. Since... You're neither one of these, he says in verse 16. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The original text, I'm going to throw up. That's God saying that. That's God speaking through the, the apostle John saying, because you play the middle game, I'm, about to, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire so you become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes. He basically says three things, poor, blind, and naked. And let me tell you why this is so significant. Laodicea is known for three things. It was a wealthy city. They were known for great wealth. And we know that when we have wealth, we can struggle with something, right? Power. We don't need God. They had everything they needed. That doesn't mean we call and ask God to make us poor, but they had a lesser love they were being affectionate over, and that was their wealth. Second, they actually made in that city and were famous for an eye salve to clear up eyesight. It wouldn't heal blind people, but it would bring clarity to eyes Here's God saying, you think you see clearly life and have perspective? You're blind. And the third, 
They were known for making a, a, a fabric, a cloth that was famous and purchased from all over the world from Laodicea. God says, you think you're clothed in beautiful garments? You're naked. That was shaming. You don't have right standing with me. How is it this bride, that this church, like a bride and groom, on a wedding day, making vows can find themselves so far away, so replacing the hunger that they had for Jesus with something else? Friends, I don't think it's much different than what we struggle with today. About being the, the, this community that's rallied around Jesus rallied around who he is and so this morning I want to give you some context for this passage but around the idea that this devotion is hunger this devotion is is a pure hunger in its onset in the early church and so it says this they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching first they had a hunger for teaching but let me clarify so much of our culture today is around intellectual faith. We are, we are so saturated with messages. I'm right now going through an 18 series of, of a teacher and a professor, a pastor and a professor about doctrine and how to teach. When in our time in history could you do that? You could pretty much sit on your phones this morning, right, and cross-check everything I'm saying, right, with facts. Isn't it crazy? We have so much information, and why is it we have so few that actually live it? It's because in our culture, knowledge is king. Matters less if you do it. Yeah, do you know it? Very different in this time. They were hungry for teaching, and you know what they were circling around? They were telling, tell me more about Jesus. I don't think you're getting it. So let me, let me tell it this way. My grandmother is 95 years old, and she lives in Burbank, California. Every chance I get to go see her, I do it, because I don't know if it's the last time I'll see her. 95 years old. She was born in 1919. Whoa, right? Every time I sit with her, I go, Grandma, tell me some stories. You told me about your dad. He was a security officer head of security for studios in Burbank, and you got to dance. Tell me about the people you met. Tell me stories about you. Oh, I love hearing her stories. This is what the early church is doing. The early church is gathering. They're not gathering, friends, and saying, could you give me the four spiritual laws? Could you give me all the right doctrine? Could you give me so I have it all exactly right? Friends, all they were rallied around, Jesus lived a pure life, died for my sin, and rose again and defeated death, and that's my way to God. That, that's what they were rallied around. And they just said, tell me more. Tell me more about Jesus. I meet so many people today in the faith just want more information, but do nothing with it. Friends, that's, that's not the devotion, the hunger for teaching today. And if you isolate yourself just to be an academic Christian, you will find your way lost, guarantee it. You'll become arrogant, you'll become prideful. It's because it's, we're broken. He says they're devoted to teaching, and so we want to be devoted to teaching, but they're also devoted to fellowship. They were hungry for fellowship. Now, this word, 
probably, again, doesn't mean too much. I grew up in a church in Burbank where we actually had a room, probably half the size of this room, and you went down in the basement, and guess what it was called? Fellowship Hall. That's right. That's where the fellowship happened, people. It's where it all went down, fellowship. And you know what went down around? Potlucks. Uh, we just had a guy come teach our staff and some pastors in town, Stan, and he was talking about, um, it's all about potato salad. And he was talking about potlucks. I'm laughing because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's so true. It was about potlucks. And there was this fellowship, but I think sometimes we've mistaken that like our greeting three minutes is fellowship. Nope, that's not fellowship. Fellowship in, in the scriptures actually is more intimate, much more intimate, almost, well not even almost, an unsafe intimate that most of you would be comfortable with. Being unpacked, unpacking hearts, bringing shame to the circle, talking about what it is to follow Jesus but stumble and struggle. It is an interconnectedness. I don't know why nobody sits in these seats. I know you guys are sitting in the seats. You're like the brave ones. Can everybody find a chair right here? Um, you're not going to sit on stage. So whoever gets, there's a chair. I need you to come grab a chair. I don't know how I can get clearer. Yes, if you're second rows, yeah. You thought you were hiding. Whatever row you're in. Okay, just set up the chair right there, yeah. You guys are so afraid. I'm not going to call you on stage, I promise. Oh, you're going to come on stage. No, I don't want you to sit up here. Good Lord. Now you'll wreck everything. No, I'm just joking. Um, yeah, just set these up. So I had this mentor uh, named Bo. And uh, he, I just talked to him actually last week. And we, in early years in my, my beginnings of being part of community, a community of believers, I came to Christ at age seven, but... It wasn't until about 18 that I really just felt like God ignited the switch in my life and I moved from punching a card to a relationship with Jesus. And we had these peers, high school and college, guys and girls. Now, this, this picture brings back huge memories because sometimes for our, our time together, we would do worship. And believe it or not, I, I knew like three or four chords and I could lead worship songs. So... Look out, here I come. Um, we were just a raw group of people in love with Jesus trying to figure out what it meant to follow him. But sometimes the room was set up like this and it was like, oh no. Because what he had named this thing was called the hot seat. So you would sit in the middle and you would hear from each of your peers the blind spots in your life. I mean, how many in the room would be really energized to do that? Some of these people I didn't know that well. Hey, Troy, as I observed you. you. Your pride seems to be getting the best of you. Ah. Oh, it wasn't out of non-love. They wanted the best for me because we were hungry for fellowship because if I'm driving on the wrong side of the road spiritually, why won't someone tell me? How many of you in this room know somebody that's driving on the wrong side of the road spiritually to doom and you say nothing to them because you believe the lie, it's none of your business? Fellowship means it is our business and we're to love people that way and you place yourself in that. This is the early church. 
Oh, this is so counterculture, right? Whoa. I, it's cool in the title and stuff, community, but no. If you isolate yourself just with teaching and you just isolate yourself that I'm just going to know more things about God and talk spiritual, but don't actually practice what it means to humble yourself, to be 1 Corinthians 12, which means be a part of the body of Christ. That picture of bones and muscle and sinew and tendons and ligaments all connected, or are you just a severed, paralyzed body member? Are we just a box of parts that sounds so gross and disgusting, but I'm sure that would be to God. If we don't remember that fellowship, they were hungry for this. Tell me, tell me another story. He forgave the adulterous woman. And I can, I can do that. This, this picture still just unearths in me so much thankfulness for those years. They were hungry for teaching. They were hungry for fellowship. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread. Now you see another word there. It says, with awe. Because breaking of bread in this context, later on they'll say breaking bread, which would mean more dinner together. This actually means the sacrament of communion. Because all they remember was Jesus' last supper words, which were what? Do this often. There, there is something in the early church, and there's something of hunger that they had, and we still res- we see it today, but awe is this sense of reverence and getting to enter into a gift. It's what we feel at a marriage ceremony. I'm moved, even though it's not my marriage, but I feel like I get to move into something God created. That's why I don't want to fiddle with ever, the world's idea of what marriage is. It's, it's what God said marriage was. He designed it. The world didn't. And so I enter into that holy space, that sacred space. They had a hunger for worship. It's why when we sing songs, no matter who's leading, and songs like, there's a sun coming up. I mean, doesn't that unearth in you of like, oh, thank you, because I screwed up yesterday. I wasn't very forgiving or loving. I wasted my time. I was looking for lesser loves. Oh, thank God for grace. Thanks that there's the sun coming up. And that's the hope of Jesus, right? Because the cross, he paid the price, that it's nothing that we do, but we get to re-embrace forgiveness. And he says, sin no more. Sin no more. That's the beauty of what God calls us to, unlike any other faith stream in the world, all which require you to jump through hoops. Jesus says, come to me. I'm I'm knocking on the door. I'm, I'm trying to get your attention just enter into relationship with me. They were hungry to worship. What stirs in your soul when you hear? Is it, is it the volume of the music or at the lyrics? There are times, you friends, I sit down there and think, oh, I needed those words. Not because of the way they're arranged, but the words remind me of this hunger to worship the one that created me. Friends, we don't gather to put the 
you know, the, the paddles on you and, and jolt your heart. It is for us that have a hunger to worship God. And therefore, however that expression needs to be, hands up, down on your knees. But I think we have to recall and not find ourselves at fault like this Laodicean church, arrogant, prideful, and complacent. Trading God for an, a, a guilt and shame-based religion. Where's the hunger you have for him? The holiness that you have for him. The, the longing to see him one day. They had a hunger, not only for teaching, not only for fellowship, but for worship. And it says, they had this devotion, this hunger for teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were so excited when the t- curtain was torn in the temple. Boom, no longer a priest needed. The Bible says that. The Bible clearly says, for those of you who have other faith backgrounds, no priest was needed. You now are the priesthood of all believers. That means everyone can enter in. Now start talking to them. You see, they were hungry to talk to him. And I'm sure they talked to him a lot, right? I'm sure on, on paths to different cities hearing there's persecution, oh Lord, we're excited about you, but we're afraid. Lord, I just sold my house, I gave to the poor. We read that in there, right? I gave to the poor, I don't know how I'm doing tomorrow. Lord, I don't like some of these believers you brought into the church. Can you help me love them? Could you imagine the prayers? There was a hunger to talk to the one. This last section, these last really four verses give us an interesting insight to this last point. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give anyone who had need Every, way, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. You see a theme? And glad, with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Their hunger was contagious. Their hunger started to create so much curiosity in the city that more people said, who is this Jesus? Who is the Jesus that satisfies you in such a way to love him that way? It's why Jesus says in John 17, I'm not taking you from the world. Friends, we think as Christians sometimes in our culture, we're supposed to isolate ourselves from the bad world and government, right? No, that's why he left us. He left us to be in the bad world and government so that everybody would point in saying there's something different about us in the midst of politics and racism, and evil, and darkness, and sin, that there be a light. Not because you're the light, because he is in you. They were hungry for together. Hungry to be together. None of this you could you could commit yourself to prayer. You could commit yourself to doing your own you know, religious worship service 
and, and the privacy. I hear it all the time. Well, I, I privately worship God within the inside. I, guys, it's time for us to drop that. I worship him inside. Okay, that's fair. That's good. In heaven, you're going to look like a lunatic. Because everybody is going to be bowing and raising their hand and dropping to their, to their knees. And you're the one that's going to be going, hey, God, I'm, it's in here. It's in here. I'm, I'm worshiping you. Oh, I'm doing it all in here. That's why David said, come let us worship and bow down to the Lord our maker. Come let us praise him. Let us lift up holy hands. Let's... Friends, that's not requirements for you to do those things and look spiritual. What's the expression of your love for God? And they wanted to do that together. They wanted to do that together. To be connected and to, to worship him in such a way that the church just started to see, wow, these people are different. And not different because we hold up picket signs and saying how bad things are. Friends, vote and do all that, but scripture says clearly, we obey governments no matter evil or good. We're supposed to be living in such a way that confuses everybody. How could they vote against this but then be some of the best followers in the world? That's the radicalness of the gospel. You wanted Bible and gospel this morning? That, that is, this is it. This is the early church. And they were committed together. For years, I sign money things when I write a letter, it says together. Because I know that the flesh in me, the sinful part of me, will move away from this. It'll move away from together. But man, when I'm together, someone said it last service, boy, it's way better live than on live stream. I hope so. I hope so, because if you reduce yourself to teaching and just your own prayer time, and you don't have together, you can't have fellowship. You gotta have conversation. You gotta be able to dig it up. You gotta be able to talk to one another. You gotta be able to, to say, we wanna get around you and your marriage because it's failing before our eyes, and we know you made that love covenant, and we want you to hold true to it. That's the church. That is a remarkable community. Friends, we're flawed. This is not a call to perfection. It's a call for us to be reminded about what it means to be a community. It's all of us together putting our hands in the middle and saying we, we are committed to that call that Jesus gave us. Now, I'm gonna ask if you guys could get these chairs and just put them back down. Could you do that, you don't mind? Um, I want to show you a picture, and I've shown you this before. This is a picture in uh, 1968 in a basement, because a group of people said, we long and hunger for Jesus in our city. So much we're going to get together. We're going to figure it out in a basement, and in 1968, this is the group that starts to bring Harvey Martin up, a, a teacher from Racine Bible Church every week for a couple years to come teach them. They didn't have a rule book. They didn't have a, some sort of church planting guide. They just said, we need to do this. They're gonna sing together. They're gonna give. They're gonna begin to do this journey. And they take a risk because they're refusing to be complacent and arrogant. And they said, we wanna make an impact for Jesus 
in our city. They're hungry. That hungry group decides they're going to buy a building. I believe it was $9,000 for that group right there. That was a big deal. That was a really big deal. In 1969, they buy the schoolhouse off of GV, and here they go. They know it's not about buildings, but they're growing, and more people are starting to want to know about this Jesus, and they have to solve that problem. They would later, later move from this and rent a facility, and we find ourselves here today, but let me go back, though, to one of the first services. I believe it's the first service that morning. That first service, here's the bulletin, and it says, uh, Pastor Martin, Harvey Martin is going to preach, and it says, Psalms 127. Psalms 127. I want to read that for you. He's going to preach five verses, and here's what it is. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Do you think they had it right? They just bought a building. But they recognize that the hunger they have is for Jesus. And no matter what they do, it's all about God. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so they say, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city and guards stand watch in vain. The guards stand watch in vain unless God's doing it. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food and eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. The writer's saying, listen, it's all about your hunger for Jesus. He's in charge. Just be obedient. He says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they're accounted with their opponents in court. You know what he's talking about? As God grows the community. As God grows a community around this concept of being hungry for Jesus generations will be impacted. You sit this morning impacted by people that were hungry for Jesus. Not because of buildings, not because of programs, but because of Jesus Christ. Friends, we're doing stuff because we're committed. We're, we're gonna grow as big as we need to grow as, as God desires. I have not one bit of stress about finance, about vision, because it's a Jesus thing. If God doesn't want us to grow, we won't. If he does, look out. What I want to call you back to what it means to be community, and the question really for you this morning is, are you hungry? And we're going to be led in worship this morning, and Bobby and the team are going to take us again to this time of worship. I want you to ask a question, are you hungry? Are you truly hungry? If you're feeling like, gosh, I don't have that, maybe you don't know him. I love this ending in Revelation, in that letter to Laodicea, because listen, those are harsh words, but listen to what he says. He says it this way. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus is saying, I love you. I'm sitting in this circle telling you where you need to listen, and he says, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, Actually, he doesn't even say it that way. It's an exclamation point. He's shouting, here I am. That's Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If 
anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is inviting you this morning to satisfy the hunger. When we go to communion this morning, we are hungry for worship and we get to worship him by going to communion and be reminded that friends, the community of Jesus Christ is all about him. To be hungry for teaching, to be hungry for fellowship, to be hungry for our worship, to be hungry for prayer, and we do that together, and you get to do that together at these tables. And as you go this morning, may you be challenged in your hunger for him. Father in heaven, we pray as we go to the crosses this morning that we would not glibly just pass over something so profound and powerful about our entire eternity. And that this moment is our most important moment as we think about our own hunger. God, I pray as a church that you would continually center us around a hunger for Jesus. Pray this in your name, amen.